Hello and welcome to another episode of Untangling Science with me, Dara Ennis. Now, you may know me from ITV's The Chase, but most of my time I work in a lab. And you can't work in a lab on your own, so I have a special bonus episode here with my good friend Dahlia Gala, who will soon be Dr. Dahlia Gala. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about research, about science, and about getting the message of science out, because she is very well known online as Dahlia Science. Look her up and give her a follow. It's well worth it. So welcome, Dahlia. Thank you, Dara. So I'm just going to fire ahead. So we're going to do some questions with Dahlia. And if anybody's following this and they'd like to talk to her, um, feel free to post on social media and I'm sure we'll be able to answer any questions that you have. But my first question is, when did you first become interested in science? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I think I've been interested in science throughout my let's say childhood because I always liked looking at like plants insects being outside and spending time outside and I was fortunate enough to have a few really good biology and just uh, kind of science teachers one of whom uh, was uh, in my high school and she actually really encouraged me to pursue that uh, and uh, actually being in high school she had this whole collection of microscopy slides you know those that are like kind of fixed and you can store them in a cupboard you don't need a freezer or fridge or anything like this and she allowed me me to kind of look at them after class as long as I wanted to I know that sounds nerdy <laughs> but anyway I had a great time looking at them and it was so it was so cool she had like fragments of insects uh, she had blood cells etc etc so I think my interest in science really kind of bloomed in high school especially under the mentoring of that great teacher that I had well, you're definitely a lot nerdier than me because I ran out of school. I only really got into science when I went to university. So, yeah, you're clearly more nerdy than I am. I mean, what can I say? So I'm, at, I'm doing a PhD at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is that. Um, so speaking of university, what was your undergra undergraduate experience like, both in and out of the classroom? So uh, I grew up and lived in Poland until I was 18 and I wanted to study abroad and I applied and I got accepted at Glasgow University in Scotland. That is where I did my undergrad. And actually, it's a funny story. I didn't uh, do like a Bachelor of Science. So I don't have a Bachelor and a Master's. I just have an integrated Master's as a first degree. That was a degree that Glasgow offered. And that degree was five years. And uh, I did. it was a whirlwind of a degree, frankly, because I did first year at Glasgow. Second year, I went on exchange to Melbourne University in Australia. Third year I did in Glasgow again. Fourth year I did a placement in London at the Francis Crick Institute. That was great and it really kind of propelled me towards my PhD actually. And then the fifth year I was back at Glasgow. So it was like you really not only in and out of classroom but also in and out of Glasgow really. And yeah my courses uh, were I would say quite comprehensive but they were like a ladder. So in the first year we did a lot of like uh, kind of general biology so to speak. I even had some course in like recognition of mammalian skulls and like dissection of sheep's lungs and so on which I applied for molecular biology so I was like a bit confused why I was doing these so for could you explain just for people who don't do science what you mean by molecular biology yes that's right so molecular biology would be the biology at the smallest probably possible level of course we all know that matter and stones and rocks and desk and the computer and the microphone we speak to are made of atoms but then of course we also know that me you Dara any animal that you look at they are they are alive and what distinguishes me from the microphone is the fact that my me the matter that I am is organized into cells they are the basic units of life and molecular biology actually looks at cells 
those individual units that make up my body and a fly body. Flies are what we work on in our lab. And we look at the things that are even smaller level than the cells. So for example, DNA, that is the code that kind of encodes all the instructions for, for the cell to function. And we look at protein, which are the tools which allow us to perform all the functions and tasks that we do in everyday life. For example, our muscles are made of proteins and so on and so forth. So that's what I was always interested in. Coming back to what I said about high school and looking at the microscopy slides, I wanted to see what is not seen with the human eye, what is beyond the, the what I can perceive with my own eyes. Of course, I'm also interested in, you know, ecology, environment and animals, but molecular biology does the biological aspects of things which are beyond what we can see is what I was most interested in. Therefore, my degree was supposed to be molecular biology and the first year was quite general. But I in a way think that's good because first of all, that gave me a bigger understanding and a bigger picture of, you know, of course, I look at individual cells, things under the microscope, but you know, they belong to an organism, a human being or a dog or a cat or a fly or a plant. And secondly, that also gave me kind of a broader overview of like different degrees that I could finish. So you technically apply for, let's say, molecular biology degree. But fortunately in Glasgow, because of this foundation year, you could choose other paths. For example, you could go end up doing zoology if you changed after the first year. So they gave us a taste of literally, I would say everything, a lot. Then uh, when I was in exchange and in the second year, we started doing more courses related to our focus. And that is when we did courses on, for example, DNA. So the code of life, how do the bases, so units of DNA encode for different uh, functions that the cells can perform, for example. And we also had courses in physiology and genetics. And uh, I also had a course in human anatomy. So that was quite exciting. And then in the third year, we did a lot of courses which were very much focused on on actually molecular biology so we started touching on topics such as biochemistry which is mainly concerned with proteins and how to study proteins how to find out about their function and other courses including uh, the energy in our body and bioenergetics how is it that different molecules and things which are in our cells allow us to to have energy to move muscles to perform tasks etc so that's what i did in the third year now fourth year was my master's year that's when i did a project in in a lab I did it for the entirety of that year and that was probably the first moment when I felt like a more independent researcher. Uh, I had to design my own experiments, consult them with my boss and kind of think about future steps in my experimental design. And in the end of that year, I had to write a master's thesis, which I had to defend upon my return to Glasgow in the fifth year. Yeah. That sounds very busy. <laughs> it was a very busy degree indeed. So when you moved to uh, back into the lab rather than in classes, what was that like your first day when you walked into the lab? You had been used to doing sort of practicals, but when you suddenly had a project and you had to design experiments and actually become a real scientist, how? what was your first day like? How did it feel? Uh, I remember being really intimidated and simultaneously feeling self-confident. And that's, I think, because the fact that I got accepted into, into the placement in the lab meant that I was good enough. That gave me a big boost. However, of course, I was surrounded by people who were more senior than me. They had more experience than me. And soon enough, it became clear to me how much I still have to learn. Not that I ever <laughs> doubted it, right? But, you know, I just was like, oh man, this is heavy. I just, you know, I think the longer you progress in science the more you realize that there is there is a vast just an ocean of knowledge that you kind of 
try to approach like drop after drop but then you realize that like even though you you learn every day you will never be able to comprehend it all and i think yeah my first day in the lab was the mix of those feelings i would say yeah well that, that's an interesting point actually the the more that you learn the more you realize you don't know i know that's a really old uh, saying i think it's from ancient greece but mm. it really is key to understanding how little we know about the world we think we know an awful lot but it becomes very clear that there's so much we don't know i definitely agree so you had a great time in glasgow by the sounds of things and melbourne um but what made you apply to oxford um i think i didn't want to live in the same place for my phd as i lived in for my undergraduate degree plus also there's the advantage of oxford often having a lot of funding we can't kind of pretend that that's not a thing of course there are universities at which there are labs that have more funding and less funding this is a little bit unfair but it's it is what it is and i definitely wanted to be in a well-supported lab where i could dream of any experiments that i could do dream of anything i wanted to do and it would be possible i wouldn't maybe face financial limitations and uh, i was fortunate enough to be able to find several labs both in oxford but also in london and in birmingham where i applied for my programs for my phd programs and i went to visit those labs and i and i pretty much just liked our lab the best i think what solidified my conviction that I should actually apply to Oxford was coming to our lab, spending a whole day here. And frankly, my impression was that a lot of people were honest here. No one was like, you know, uh, how do you say that? Kind of trying to to create a, a diversion and pretend like science isn't, you know, hard work. Everybody just told me, you know, it will be a lot of work, but the lab is supportive. It is what it is. And yeah, just your attitude and your honesty really convinced me. Well, that's very important as well, is, is that it is a collaborative atmosphere that everybody is realistic and nobody's hiding from the boss so it is a good place to come all right it definitely came across like that and if any one of you are considering applying or for masters or a phd program i would definitely recommend that you speak with the lab members and the supervisor and you kind of have an honest conversation try to try to gauge are they are they telling you the truth are they being honest what's the atmosphere like because that's going to be your surroundings for the next years yeah, and it's as, as a very key tip, if you're not allowed to talk to the people in the lab without the supervisor being there, that's not a good sign. <laughs> Indeed, it is not. Beware. Because that means that maybe there are things they would say that the supervisor doesn't want them to say. So be careful. Yeah, because you are signing up to quite a lot. So in, in very simple terms, can you explain what your project is, what you're working on right now for your PhD? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm assuming, Dara, you know who Stephen Hawking is. Yes. And hopefully the listeners know that as well. So uh, Stephen Hawking, of course, was bound to a wheelchair that I think Microsoft designed for him or something. Anyway, Stephen Hawking was in a wheelchair. And that is because the signals from his brain to his muscles weren't quite, so to speak, making their way there. So, of course, I'm assuming Stephen could think like, oh, I want to lift my hand or I want to move my muscle. But because of some problems which were between the connection between the neuron and the muscle he couldn't do that so actually it so turns out that you can model that connection the connection between the neuron and the muscle in fruit flies in fruit fly larvae and that is what i work on i specifically use microscopy to look at the connection between the motor neuron motor meaning the neuron which directs the motor function which directs the muscles so i look at the connection between the motor neuron and the muscle and that connection is called the neuromuscular junction the junction between the neuron and the muscle and i actually look at uh, what rna does at that uh, junction and i know that rna might not be a term that some of you are uh, let's say 
familiar with. So coming back to DNA, which a lot of people know, DNA is the code, like a kind of recipe book, which which writes, which which kind of contains all the information for, for example, for me, for Dahlia, or Dara has his own recipe book. <laughs> Dara, your, <laughs> your recipe book talks about how to make a Dara. <laughs> and then uh, when we think about the cells, an individual gene would be something coding for a particular feature, like the color of your eyes being brown, or a particular protein which allows your muscle to contract. And then from that gene, a message will be made to make that protein, the tool. So it's as if I took a recipe and for a chocolate cake, and then uh, copied it, and then made the cake. The recipe the individual recipe for the chocolate cake, that's RNA. And the cake is the protein. And the whole recipe book is the DNA. So I look at RNA at the neuromuscular junction, and I look at how the synapse, synapse functions and what happens when there is something wrong with it. Oh, well, thank you very much. That, even though I know what you're, uh, what you're working on, obviously, because I work in the same lab, that's a very good explanation of it. <laughs> um, so... When you go into the lab on, on a day, just like what's a typical day in the lab? I know it changes all the time, but what would be a very usual day in, in the lab for you? Uh, so, as you said, it changes. Some days are longer and some are shorter for me. But if I had like an ideal day and nothing went wrong and everything went according to plan, it would probably be the following way. I don't really wake up very early. I'm not the kind of person to get up at 6 a.m. I think I get up at like 8 or 9 and I get to the lab by 10 or 11. Depends if I've got like emails in the morning. Sometimes I will just sit at home and do some of the work on the computer, especially now because of COVID. Sometimes it's better just to stay home and do some of the office work at home. When I get here, I usually, the first thing that I do is check the fly stalks. Now fly stalks, they are fly lines, different types of fruit flies, which we order or so to speak, prepare in the lab, and they might have a lot of features uh, which allow us to study them in more detail. And there are, I think, actually thousands of them uh, available worldwide, and there are probably hundreds of them in our lab. And I probably have one or 200 of my own fly lines, which allow me to study the neuromuscular junction, as I mentioned to you earlier. And so I make sure that they are well fed and taken care of, that they look healthy, and that they are in a good shape overall. So that usually takes me a couple of hours and then if I've got some time I might plan experiments uh, which I want to do in the afternoon and if I don't I just head straight to lunch after I deal with my stocks and then usually in the afternoon I either do an experiment or do imaging so if I have some new hypothesis or something planned I will design and perform an experiment usually that involves selecting some fly larvae and preparing them such that I can look at them under the microscope and if I'm just doing microscopy I'm going to be looking at the larvae that I prepared a couple days or a couple weeks ago uh, on the microscope and usually I leave the lab <laughs> I'm usually one to leave the lab a bit later I am definitely more of a person who works kind of afternoon to evening so I leave the lab at maybe 7 or 8 p.m and then I head home yeah that would be a typical day in the lab so I think the flexibility of this job probably works very well for you I think if you had to be in here at 8 30 you might go crazy oh I absolutely would go crazy I just I can't really you know make it happen I think it's just just how I am yeah not everyone's a morning person I am and um, everybody hates me for it but I wake up very happy at 6 a.m I mean um, yeah we kind of hate you but then you always get everything done for us so that's the important and I bribe thing. you with donuts and he bribes us with donuts all right <laughs> so in the course of all the time you've done research, is there any particularly surprising thing you found out about doing research? Not maybe a result, but what's the surprising thing you found out about having a, a job doing research? Hmm. I think from 
comparing myself to my high school self and also as a high schooler I participated in some you know high school science conferences for young scientists or like science fairs and I think the notion when you went to those was that science is easy and glamorous and I know that it's silly but you know we were encouraged to do it we were like science is the future it's so exciting to do it and it just seemed like you would you know go to the lab do an experiment and that would be it I know that might have been naive but I think that's how I thought of it at the time and during the course of my degree and especially during the course of my master's and my PhD I have realized that science is just constant failure I'm being honest however you can kind of overcome it and still get results, but with like really high amounts of resilience. You need to build resilience in science. And so I think when I first started dealing with failure in science, it was a bit of a shock for me, even to the point where towards the end of my master's, I was considering maybe I'm not cut out for it. Maybe I'm not a good scientist. Maybe, you know, everything I touch turns bad and, you know, and all these other people, everything they touch turns to gold. And then I realized, no, that's not true. The difference between me and those people was that they just kind of, if it failed an experiment, they just repeated it five times. If it failed one way, they designed it another way. And sometimes if it just fails altogether, you have to know when to say, it's just not working and move on to new things. So yeah, I think overall the amount of failure and the fact that you have to really change your attitude, that was quite a shock to me, I'd say. So yeah, the the amount of time it takes, it, it always looks very nice when people are finished and they present their results that worked and they make it sound like they did it in a couple of months, but it probably took years. Indeed, yeah. yes. So that, that touches on the next question. So obviously the failure rate is is difficult to deal with and it can really get you down but what are the negative aspects of being a scientific researcher because we always talk about the positives because you know we like to tell people about how mm. we like our job but what what are the downsides of it from it from my point of view as a 25 year old woman i think a thing that i find particularly difficult and a thing that i think a lot about is the fact that doing science makes you be in a different life stage than some of your peers. So for example, I look at people with whom I graduated at Glasgow and some of them already have houses or spouses or live a different life than I live. A life of a researcher is a life of a lot of travel, a lot of instability. And I think you have to face that if that's what you want to do. I think that might be difficult for some people. For now, I would say I'm coping well with it, but that's because, you know, I, for example, didn't have plans to, let's say, start a family. I know it could be hard for women my age to start a family while doing a PhD. I think that's one negative aspect, very obvious negative aspect. And yeah, touching on the traveling, it is also, for example, the fact that, let's say, you move from master's to PhD, you move to a different city, you might lose all of your friends, or if you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they are left behind. Then from your PhD, maybe you want to do a postdoc, you move to another town, because it, often it is badly looked upon that you stay in one town, you have to show that you're flexible, that you move, that you're adventurous and you want to take on challenges. And so it's almost expected that you will be traveling everywhere. And for some people, you know, when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, maybe you want to live in one place close to your parents or close to your spouse or close to your friends. So that's definitely quite negative, I think. Yeah, it is. And I, I had the same experience with, um, you know, seeing my friends. So I had quite a lot of friends who didn't go to university and they got you know jobs in construction and other things and they earned quite a lot of money and I spent 10 years in university mm. earning very little money so they all had like you know they bought their house and they were going on two or three holidays a year and I was you know broke so yeah that can that can be difficult to take yeah but you know it's worked out well in the end um so if everything was to work out perfectly if we were to get rid of all these negatives 
and everything was working out great and you could achieve all of your long-term goals, what would you like to see in your career? How would you see your career progressing? So I would, I'll be honest, I think I change my mind about it like every day. <laughs> I genuinely do because some days when I do my experiments and it works like I want them to, they work like I want them to, I think to myself like, wow, I can totally be a scientist. Like I'm going to go for a principal investigator position. I'm going to become a supervisor, a boss at a university, have my own group, be a group leader. That would be great. And frankly, if I could be in the right place at the right time, of course, that's hard to achieve. But if I could, I absolutely wouldn't mind starting my own group, pursuing research. I think I still have a lot to learn during my PhD, but I am, I would say, a creative person and I have a lot of ideas for experiments that I could do and for directions that I could take my research. So I would love that. But I'm also being realistic and I'm never like a black and white kind of a person. And I think that if I did my PhD and a great job offer in industry came up, I probably wouldn't mind that either. Especially considering the fact that, as we said, industry, the remuneration can often be higher. You can get more money and you often end up doing the same research that you'd be doing, except in a different context. So yeah, that's definitely, let's say the industry is probably like 30% of my future plan, but like 70% solidly, I would love to stay in academia, be a group leader and do my own research. So one thing you're particularly good at is um, is social media and, and outreach, sort of getting science across. Would that be something you consider doing if an opportunity came to do it, like a, a radio show or a TV show or writing books or something like that? Oh my, I actually would love that. But I think it's a bit of a cruel world and you probably are experiencing a little bit of that yourself. So on my Instagram, which you, Dara, mentioned, which is at Dahlia Science, if you are curious, um, I... I'm a pretty mild person, I would say. All I say is, you know, believe in yourself, you can do it. I share my research and so on and so forth. And I still get people being very mean to me. And I'm not even that prominent, I would say. I mean, okay, of course, I amassed some people who are interested in it, but, you know, and I'm not sure how easy it would be to be in that career. However, the very nature of it, namely, to be able to put science out there, to inspire people, to chat to new people. I met so many amazing STEM communicators on Instagram and on Twitter through that. That would be amazing. I would really love to do that. But I would have to think very carefully and very heavily. Am I cut out for that? Like, will I be upset about people being mean to me? Because I'm a bit of a softie, you know, guys. And yeah, I just I just wouldn't know if that would be the right thing for me to do. Yeah, the, the trolls are always awful. And if you put yourself out there, unfortunately, you're putting yourself out there for horrible people as well as nice people. Mm-hmm, indeed. Well, if Speaking of nice people, if you could meet <laughs> any scientist in history, so anyone who's ever worked in science, either alive or dead, for coffee, who would it be? Uh, uh, I think it would be Barbara McClintock. Barbara Barbara McClintock. Why did I have a problem saying her name? That was bad. (laughs) But I would definitely want to meet her because I remember learning about her in undergraduate when we were learning about transposons. And first of all, I thought transposons were cool. So transposons, they are... You remember when we were talking about DNA being the recipe book? Well, transposons are a bit like a magical moving recipe like something from harry potter or whatever (laughs) so you open your book on page 10 and there is a recipe for your chocolate cake and then you close your book you're happy with yourself the next day you open it on page 27 and that's where the chocolate cake recipe is now so that's a transposon it's a genetic element which can kind of cut itself out of its current location and move elsewhere and that's what she was studying and i know that maybe to you as you're listening it 
uh, it sounds crazy. And it did sound crazy also to her peers at the time, Barbara McClintock's peers. And in fact, when she was accepting her Nobel Prize, or I think talking about her Nobel Prize, she said something along the lines of, they thought I was stupid and they didn't believe me. And uh, yeah, a lot of people actually didn't believe what she was saying. She was a, a botanist who studied uh, maize at uh, in the States. And uh, people were like, yeah, this, this idea is mad. She's crazy. She's seeing things. And then it later turned out to be true. And her, her work was awarded a Nobel Prize. And that's why I think I would like to meet her because she, she always stayed that person who she was when she first discovered it. She never questioned herself or others. She was always just really interested in the science and working on her question and that's what i aspire to be i want to just look at look at my experiments look at my science and ask the honest questions without being swayed by what is trendy in science or what is popular or what other things what others think and i just want to answer the questions that i'm curious about yeah i'd like to talk to barbara mcclintock as well she's a very fascinating person i think i'll have to do a feature on her at some point oh yes please you got it Ada. yeah so just a couple more questions. One would be, if you weren't a scientist, so if you were to give all this up today, what would you do? Oh, man. I think I would be a opera singer. I know that it's a bit of a tangent <laughs> that we've entered. However, I have been singing for a while now. And in fact, when I was in, living in Poland, I did go to music school. But my main subject at the time was guitar. But later I became interested in singing and I sing soprano currently, which Oxford University is a really great place to be to do that because there are lots of choirs, lots of things to get involved in. So, yeah, uh, I think I would love to be on stage just singing my heart away. <laughs> Oh, all these talented people I work with, you make me sick. Oh, stop it, Dara. As if you're not talented. As if you're not talented. I can't sing say. a note. Not one note. Okay, last question. If you could offer one piece of advice to anyone interested in studying science, what would it be? Be resilient. That's it. You have to be aware of the fact that it will require a lot of resilience from you. However, nothing is impossible. If you're resilient, nothing is impossible. And I know this is going to sound corny, but I come from, so to speak, average family in Poland and I crawled my way up to Oxford. And I did it not because I'm smarter than everybody. I'm genuinely not, I promise. And I did it not because I'm better than anyone or because I had better grades. There are tons of people with good grades. I did it because I really, really liked asking questions about neurons and neuroscience. So I really loved my discipline and I mostly did it because I just never gave up. And uh, that's the attitude you have to adopt. If they close the door, you come through the window. If the train doesn't run, you take the bus or a taxi or you walk and walk and walk. And with resilience, you can achieve great things, I promise. Well, I think a key thing to take from that is not just resilience, it's that we can teach people techniques and skills, but that curiosity and the wanting to know how the world works is what really makes a scientist. So. That's true, yeah. I don't think I made that come across. I really love my research, yes. So the passion and the resilience are what makes a scientist. Yes, exactly. Well, Dahlia, thank you very much. That was a great interview. Um, just, again, how can people find you if they want to talk to you about your work? You can find me at Instagram, at Dahlia.science. And I am also on Twitter, just where you can find Dara, at Dahlia underscore science. And you can also find Dahlia on our lab website, which is ilandavis.com. Thanks very much, Sally. Thank you, Dara.